Hey, everybody! It is Yasser! I forgot my line. I'm just kidding. It's Isaiah! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We are from my brother Sneaker, and we've got a little announcement. We are teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you three exclusive uh, episodes. Uh, Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moment from a ton of podcasts and creates playlist clips from a bunch of shows. And you can just search and try them out and find anything that you love. For instance... Oh, yeah. There's a playlist on there uh, called Slice of Life, which is all about like crazy, incredible things that happen to everyday people. Like, I just learned this, bro. I just learned some people pay their bills on time, dog. Oh, is that a thing? Dog, people will have a bill due date and they will pay that bill before then. That's crazy to me. Before then. You know what else is crazy? What? Spook also has a a lot of fun, exclusive content from Feral Audio. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, like our tournament episodes, they're going to be, oh, like, yeah. you know, there's going to be stuff like Sleep With Me, a lot of our, our other great shows here at Feral. You don't want to miss it. Yep. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of my brother's sneakers exclusive Spoke episodes at hearspoke.com slash my brother's sneakers. Model boys, cute boys, round butt boys all day. Guys, I want to tell you about a great sponsor I have, Bompus. They're premium high-performance athletic socks, and they're so comfortable you're never going to want to take them off. And because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters, for every pair of socks purchased, Bompus donates one pair of those to those in need. Almost one million pairs donated to date. 15% off the first purchase of four or more socks, plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral. And buy some comfortable socks. Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. Thank you for listening. If you haven't uh, listened to my show before, it is just what the title implies there. It is a conversation with me and another person that's really interesting, uh, often far more interesting than me. Um, today I talk with uh, Jamie Pratter, who made the documentary No Place to Call Home, uh, which is about the uh, Christian commune, Jesus People USA, Evangelical Convent Church. Did a mouthful there. And uh, it's a pretty intense document. It's, we, the world which he grew up in is already intense, this uh, commune. But then all these, uh, well, he was making a film. Uh, slowly he discovered all these tales of um, of darkness within this commune. We'll, I'll let you get to the, I, I don't want to ruin it. That goes on in the conversation. Um, also, I forgot to mention, if you like my theme music there, it's a band called Les Blanks. Check them out at lesblanks.com. I know they're going to have a new album coming out in spring of 2014, I believe. Sometime early 2014. Uh, you're going to want to hear that. Um, also, I just want to say real quickly, <laughs> if I can do that. Um, if you're one of those people who believes that the world is 5,000 years old, I don't think you should be allowed to vote. I don't really think... If you're going to deny um, 
fact and science because some other book that is has a lot of questionable content to it uh, says so. You, you shouldn't be able, like, you've proven that you shouldn't, and you shouldn't have influence. You shouldn't be able to vote on matters where that might influence other people to believe in or force them to hear about such stupid things as that the world is 5,000 years old and was created by a guy with a big white beard. Um, <laughs> it's really... And also, if you're, and if, you, if you're a person who says God told you to run for political office, then not only should you not be allowed to run for political office, but you should be put in the crazy house. Because I don't think God... If you look at how the world is going, I don't think God is going, hey, I'm going to ignore these uh, kids with AIDS over here in Africa, but hey, you guy, get a lot of money from the rich white people and run for office, because I'm telling you to. Uh, what? Hey, there's another tsunami destroying Asia? Yeah, well, that's cool. I got, I, I'll get to that, maybe, possibly. I have to keep telling these people that uh, abortion is wrong and that they should run for political office and that... Uh, their personal moral doctrine should be integrated into uh, the legal system of the United States of America. <laughs> yeah, God, God cares about that, about your political standings, but not famine and pestilence and plague. Um, I just think it's weird that people are like, well, it's in the Bible. Hey, you know, there's things in comic books, too. <laughs> just because, and some people kind of believe superheroes might exist i don't know it's just confusing to me that's all the world is confusing but uh let's get on to my conversation with jamie pratter it's a really great one enjoy it thank you I think it's best to start with uh, your film is called No Place to Call Home, and That's I right. I think you would uh, probably articulate what this film is better about better than I would. If uh... Uh, I would articulate it, uh, No Place to Call Home chronicles the lives of several people born and raised in the Jesus People USA commune on Chicago's North Side. Um, it gets it's a little bit more nuanced than that, as it. Uh, basically, the film is a, it's a, really a story within a story. So the film chronicles my own discovery of rampant cases of child sexual abuse um, that went on between 1974 and 1998, um, unreported largely um, in Jesus People. Yeah, the film is um, – it's amazing. I, I should want to say that, and it's some, – some of the photography is absolutely uh, beautiful, but also – I mean, after I finished watching the film, my head was reeling, and I knew about uh, Japuza, as they we we called it. <laughs> uh, oh yes. But it was always like in high school, I, I sort of, uh, I guess, toiled around with Christianity, and and they always seemed like this very liberal, cool, hip. You know, it was a commune, and it seemed like this very sort of more free from the outside. It seemed more of a sort of like this cool, free society. And when you watch your film, you realize it's quite the opposite. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that um, there was certainly that that um, that kind of free love come as you are. And that was really true. You know, all people of all kinds 
join Jesus people um, from all walks of life, from all ethnicities, um, all around the country, Germany, Sweden, Switzerland, Brazil, um, everywhere. Um, so it was a, the mantra of kind of come as you are, kind of cool, kind of vibe. That was true. Um, now, things changed a bit after you got there. Um, but there were there are certainly different rules in place for different people. So, I mean, at one level, that sounds it sounds like I mean, it sounds like a great experience. You're in this multicultural sort of world. You probably are meeting some pretty fascinating people and having some, I, I would imagine, some pretty great dialogues with people. Absolutely. Um, and I think one of the great things that Jesus people taught me or, yeah, um, one of the great pieces of or components of my character is the ability to love all kinds of people and to um, be compassionate and be gracious and be patient um, because there was just so many – you know, there were so many people from so many different walks of life. Everybody, sometimes people were coming off of drugs. Sometimes people were um, coming out of the out of the prison system. Um, sometimes people were just coming from families that they feel estranged from. Um, so it was, in that sense, it was, it was really wonderful. It was, there's a lot of wonderful things about it, you know, um, things that I wouldn't trade for anything. Um, and I feel like it's given me a character and a uniqueness of, of my own character um, that I wouldn't necessarily have gotten growing up in suburban Chicago. Yeah. It, it seems like when you get, it seemed a little, I mean, it, people come there and if you have kids, they kind of separate, don't they kind of separate the kids from the family a little bit? Or was that just in certain cases? It was in certain cases. Um, certainly that was an earlier practice. Not everyone, it, it didn't happen with everyone. Um, it did happen with some key people. Um, it was kind of haphazard as well. Some people would, were able to, and this is in the early 70s, early to mid-70s, maybe even to late 70s, because when my parents and I joined in 78, we were a part of another com community commune on the south side of Chicago, which was primarily African-American, except for my mom. Um, and I have an older adoptive brother, and they suggested suggested to her and my dad that, he'd be given to another family. Um, but my parents weren't having any of that. Um, so why it was kind of phasing out. Why would they want to get, get, why would they suggest that? That's like, um, I believe, uh, because they felt like, well, Hey, these people are coming in and maybe, um, let's kind of ease their burden. I think on some of, on some level, I feel like it was, they probably wanted to do the best thing, and they probably thought, well, hey, let's ease their burden. Let's make life easier for them. Um, let's have these people or these children kind of go with other people who might lessen the burden on this family so the family can get well. Not that we weren't well as a family, but I think that was kind of the thinking. Some families were joining, and they were all over the map. Um, and obviously, I'm not promoting the practice, and I th but I think in terms of – I think they wanted the best. They just – you know, but at the same time, you have these people who are in their early 20s saying, oh, hey, we're going to take your kids from you and put them in other places. But they had no children themselves. They had no idea how to raise children. They had no idea how to communicate with children. And yet they're telling these parents who've had three and four children or one or two children, hey, we know what's best for you. And that and that came through. Um, but they were also speaking for God. God was thrown in there, too. Like, God wants this. We think it would be we think it would be, you know, better to serve Jesus if, you you know, your children were 
be taking care of people who could really care for them all all day. You know, that's a mag- and, that's a magnificently manipulative statement because, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like, who the fuck are you to say what is best? Like you don't. It's and then you know because they did that with the church I was involved in, which frankly had I felt had some cultish tones to it <laughs> it's like and when you tell somebody oh it's god's will it's like you're saying you have an in a direct line to how god thinks and and for somebody who and you said in the documentary too people sort of are trained to follow a bit uh yeah i think that um certainly in the early days and probably i would imagine now i haven't lived there in 14 years but um uh, I think it wasn't even so much a train to follow it, people. It was, we're training you to follow God, and God is speaking through us. And I think it's absolutely manipulating, not just in Jesus' people. This happens in every church everywhere, where people go to church, and they, they you know, there's a pastor and, and or several pastors or whatever, and they're kind of sitting in their pews, and their heads are looking up, and they're waiting to hear what God has to say to them, as opposed to whatever God they believe in speaking to them directly. Um, and I think it is manipulating because that's how you have, um, you know, these mega church pastors spring up and they're millionaires, you know, because people are buying into other <laughs> stuff, you know? Yeah. I, I, I don't know if it's what it is on my part, but it's like anytime I see a person who is, is supposedly <laughs> of uh, religion, any religious thing, and is a, like a billionaire, I'm like, that just doesn't seem to go with most spiritual philosophies. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now just to step outside of the documentary for a second. And when you, so, uh, because you haven't lived there in 14 years, do you still, are you, do you still consider yourself a Christian or? No, I don't. Um, I consider myself, I certainly consider myself a follower of the life of Christ. I think religion, I think religion, the construct of religion is pretty much a crock. Um, (laughs) Uh, I do. Um, I, I agree. I think people have built, um, man has built these, these almost like these golden calves around the idea of religion and God speaking through text as opposed to if God is real, then God is going to speak on, God's going to speak to you um, on, on its own. And it doesn't need a building. It doesn't need people. Um, but like I said, yeah, but back to the point, I do consider myself a follower of the life of Christ because I, I'm just, it's just always a, a, a person I have aspired to, aspired to or have – what's the word I'm looking for? Or admired. Um, now, whether or not he's the son of God, I don't know. Um, whether or not he was born of virgin birth, I don't know. But I, you can't go wrong with – you can't go wrong with that model of living, you know. Um, but I also identify greatly with atheists. Um, I'm in atheist groups. I, I identify with their reason. I think they ask a lot of valid questions, the same questions that I ask. Um, the I, I, de- I identify in many ways with Buddhism. I think that there's some wonderful ideas to be found. I kind of – it's kind of like a, a, a little bit I pick and choose, you know, because I feel like it's um, – I just don't believe if there is a God that it says, okay, I'm choosing this group over here to speak through. It doesn't make any sense. It does. It, it just doesn't make sense. But so I'm kind of all over the map. Um, 
That's a long answer. No, it's a, it was a, a fascinating one, and I I think that's interesting because it's like logic would say, "Hey, that doesn't seem like the character of God." Who, <laughs> like, I'm going to pick these people, and like, sort of be a little bit of a bigot. <laughs> it's like, but that just seems to miss a lot of sort of uh, that logic misses a lot of the uh, the the loonies, I guess. That's why yeah. they might be loonies. But yeah. was it was it a, a difficult uh, transition emotionally to sort of step away from that sort of Christian world and into sort of into your own, I guess, belief structure or something? In- Absolutely, a hundred percent. Because I knew I was gay when I was very young, at the age of four. Uh, I kind of mentioned this in the documentary, but I don't really go into it in full. In, in depth, so I feel like I can talk about it with you more. Um, and when you are raised in a system where you are told from day one that your feelings for the same sex um, are tantamount to you not getting into heaven, quote unquote, um, and then as you get older and, you know, I, as you start battling and you start, you know, I mean, for a long time, even when living in the Jesus people, I just was closeted. You know, I, that was just the life I was going to live. Um, I was, I thought, well, I should play the game and I should find a girl, you know? Um, and it didn't, eventually it didn't work. I ended up leaving in 1999 from Jesus people, um, in August 22nd of 99, actually. Um, and then, then I, when I kind of got out in the world, I realized, wow, I can actually take these feelings further. Um, and I did, but then I remember having conversations with my idea of God at the time, just, just telling God saying, Oh, you can kill me if I do this again. Like, which just meant if I go and meet another guy again. Um, so it was, it was like wrestling with, it was wrestling with myself. It was, it was the, the worst darkness I have ever lived in. Yeah, I would have. I I I couldn't imagine. And it's like it's so. Uh, is Jesus people are they very openly anti-gay? Is that a? Because I know from what your documentary, they're very pro. Like get married and get married real fucking quick. <laughs> it's like because yeah. they have a weird hang-up about uh, sexual desire. Well, I would articulate. This is my opinion. I believe that they're absolutely anti-gay. Um, uh, I mean. Growing up, I would, you know, I, I, um, you could see a lot of those traits in me in terms of my attractions for same sex, um, things that I liked, eventually musical soundtracks, kind of stereotypical things that I was getting into, and that freaked people out. It freaked people out more than just normal, um, hey, I like this girl, which they still didn't like if you liked you know, a member of the opposite sex and you kind of showed that or you wrote him a letter or whatever, that was also terrible. But the gay thing was worse. It was the worst thing ever. And eventually when I was about 15 or 16, probably 15, um, and I, I had seen how this other kid I was growing up with, who was older than me, I was seeing how he, he was being treated. And I would characterize him as being a little bit more open with it, a little bit more uh, flamboyant. Um, a little more obvious with it, and I realize if I'm going to survive this, I have to butch it up. I have to put on the masculine, you know, i got to get rid of the soundtracks. I've got to be as straight acting as possible. Um, and I did, and it stuck, and I, I mean, that's fine. Um, I, I don't regret that, but um, I had to do things for my own survival, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, and that's as a as a kid, that's got to be just intense uh, pressure, and it's just got to be torture. It was, and I think it was torture because certainly you have these feelings that people are telling you are of the devil or they're evil or they're wicked, and you just don't know what to do with them, and you don't know, and you think, and you you know you see like myself, you see an attractive kid my age or whatever, um, or attractive people in general, um, and you you kind of fall head over heels, or you get butterflies in your stomach, and every time that happens, you think. This is terrible. This is awful. I'm going to hell um, every single time. Um, and you don't know. And I remember thinking I wanted to be good so bad. Like I wanted to be good. I wanted to be like good and godly, quote unquote. Um, I, uh, but I just had these feelings and they were not going away. No matter what I did, they were not going away. No matter what people said to me, no matter what they told me to do, um, they just weren't going away. And so I just had to kind of live with it. And I, I don't think at the time I was thinking it was torture. It was just the way of life. In retrospect, it was certainly torture. I mean, it was awful. So was that was it part of the reason you left Jesus people was because of those feelings? No, no. Uh, the reason I left Jesus people, my parents left in March of 99 and my sister and I remained for six months later and things were just happening and I didn't feel welcome there anymore. And, you know, I'm 23 and I'm living there still. And, you know, this is my childhood home, but I'd been going to college. I think I was the only one who had ever grown up at Jesus people who was allowed to go to college. Why they let me, I do not know. Um, Why they don't let people go to college? Uh, back in the day, they did not. These days, but it's still something that, well, you're not going to join Jesus people and then go to college. So it's something that they still don't look down. They still look down on. Um, but it's a little bit more accepted than it was before. But back in my day, there was like, no, no, you, this is just something you do not do. If you're going to do it, you need to leave. That's a, yeah, And did they also, they must uh, homeschool, I'm guessing. All education is through them? Absolutely. That is seriously detrimental. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree. And I think it, it wouldn't be detrimental if the homeschool um, curriculum was actually good, but it's not. Um, it's pretty abysmal, um, which is my opinion. Um, at least, and I'll speak, I'll say it, it was abysmal when I was in school. We, we got taught through video teachers, and so we all had headphones on in high school, and it was all in one big room. Um, and so you'd have one class watching, do, taking their English class with headphones on, looking at a monitor in one area, and then, you know, we'd have some, we'd have certainly we'd have classes that weren't with videos, but um, uh, some of the people that I have grown up with who have graduated were not able to get into college because of their diplomas. The colleges wouldn't accept them. Um, that's very much cultivating a world of uh, you can't leave. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, uh, I, I firmly believe that, you know, the way Jesus people raises children is to, is to raise them to stay put. Um, at least that is my experience when I grew up. Um, and I, I think you would at least think, be like the Amish and say, go, have fun, see the world for a couple of years. Um and tell us what you think. Come back if you want to. Stay if you don't. You know. Um, Do they have a, a theory of why, or like a philosophy of why they 
I mean, is that it's because sometimes it's maybe not a conscious choice. Maybe it's just the way things ended up. But like, do they have a theory of like the world is evil? Don't be a part of the secular world. Um, I would say when I was growing up, uh, that was very much the mantra that I heard um, from all kinds of people. The world is wicked. You don't want to go out in that world. And I, I, I liken it. And this may, may, maybe it's easier for people to understand. It was very much like The Village by M. Night Shyamalan. I mean, almost exactly in in some ways, um, where that outside world was very scary. You know, there's monsters, and um, I, I remember hearing over and over, "Don't go out in that world. That world has nothing for you out there." And so then it creates a fear of you're just terrified to go out in the world. You know, so then when you actually do go out in the world. Um, for many of us, it was it became very, very, very difficult. Um, fortunately, um, my parents left before me, and they, you know, I ended up actually moving in with my brother um, initially, and then my grandmother, and then my parents later on. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think I could accurately just because I, I remember even when I was 18, I got a job outside the community, which I still don't know why they let me do it, but they let me do it, um, and. I remember talking with some of the people at my job and they would curse and say crazy things and I would just be traumatized by it. Um, <laughs> yeah, traumatized, like, uh, just because I'd never heard some of the things that they were saying. And I was also a pretty late bloomer, you know. Um, I had no real idea about sexuality or, I mean, I knew how I felt, but I didn't, I didn't know how things worked. And this one kid who went to school somewhere in like Evanston or whatever, he would come after school to help and he would just curse up a storm to me. And it would, like I said, it was just traumatizing. And I, in many ways, I, I, I have always felt like I was never prepared for the world. Um, and I think maybe we all feel that a little bit in, certain, in terms of how we grow up, but you're talking about going from a closed, a very closed off section or commune, living in a compound to being pushed out into the world. Oh, I hope you make it. And that's not even, and you're saying that to yourself. They're not saying that to you. That's amazing. And it, it, too, this, this, you mentioned something earlier about how there, it was very accepting and anybody is welcome, which for one seems a bit hazardous because in the documentary you state that they, there was like murderers and registered sex offenders allowed to come into the community. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think, yeah, on one level, the come you are thing was great, um, but, you know, it was great for, I suppose, adults. But when you're telling people come as you are and stay in our kids' bedrooms, that's a different, you know, that's a whole different story. You know, come as you are, stay in our kids' rooms, and we're not going to and we're not gonna do any kind of background check on you. Um, that was, it was just a cocktail for um, terrible things to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's, it does seem very Christian of them, and that's really great. But, I mean, in reality, in society, it's like you can't—yes, maybe a guy who murdered some—there people can reform, but it's also somebody like a sexual predator, not always uh, reformable. It's a very often— And not even just—it's not even just sexual predators, too. Um, I think um, you don't know—I I don't know if you have children, um, no. but— Okay. Or say, like, I mean, I have four nephews and I, and say I'm watching them or they're staying with me at my house for a couple of weeks. And then some stranger says, Hey, I need a place to stay. Oh, sure. Come on in. Yeah. That would be the most, 
it would be so negligent of me and so um because my first priority are the safety of my nephews they're not this person maybe i should say hey why don't you stay down the street or hey there's a shelter over here but to invite them in and not just invite them in and say yeah come in then to say well why don't you stay with my six-year-old nephew right over here can you imagine it's insane and it didn't seem like it, it the feeling i got from your film is that there's there wasn't a great deal of i don't kids seem to be a very secondary sort of citizen of uh the community am i wrong with that no i would i would uh i would agree with that statement um i think what in my experience what i what i believe was that the the um this the What's the word I'm looking for? Not the safety of the community, but the the preservation of the community was the most important thing at all costs. And that is, and that would mean people who are working in the community business, making sure that the community business is making money, um, making sure that the community is thriving and surviving. That is number one. Uh, and then everything else was secondary. Um, to that. So the more people we have in this community, the more people who can help run this community. Um, and the children will, will figure them out later. That's wonderful. <laughs> and uh, now with, um, with the, you said, uh, I think in one of our exchanges that the, that what you show in your film is sort of just the tip of the iceberg, that there was a lot of things. It, it was too big of a story to actually fit within your film of, uh, I guess, was that just related to the sexual abuse or was that related to sort of other forms of uh, corruption or abuse? Um, I just think not even just abuse. I mean, I, I feel like... Um, the Jesus people experience is multifaceted and there are people who've joined Jesus people and left and who were better for it, who had a wonderful time. There's many of those kinds of people. And I want to make sure that I, um, kind of tip my hat towards them because I think that that's important. Um, but I think if you were a single man and you joined Jesus people back in 82, um, your story is going to be very different from mine. Someone who was essentially born in Jesus people. I was two when my parents came joined, but I don't, you know, I don't remember my first thing until I was four, you know? Um, so it's just so multifaceted. And then you have people who join Jesus people with, um, children and their children were taken away. That's a story right in and of itself. Um, you have people from other countries. It's just, it, it, it's so big. You can't, but I've chosen, and I, you know, this is something that I've spoken to with people who I've grown up with or spent time with. Um, people have said, well, you know, you're not telling the whole story. And I'm not, I'm telling, I've decided to tell one specific kind of thread of this story that I can relate to. And I think that it's probably right now the most important thing. Um, and I hope that the larger story can come out after this. Yeah, I mean, even if there are a number of great tales of that community, if any child is abused and people turned their back on it, that's a horrible, horrible tragedy. <laughs> I, I would agree. I would agree. I think right now the, um, the 
the the trauma and the tragedy outweighs any kind of good and i it's it's a difficult line for people there are people who who have lived in Jesus people or who are living in Jesus people now and they haven't had those experiences and they're pretty silent about it. Um, and I, it's been difficult for me to kind of stomach that because I've been dealing with trauma for the past four years. I mean, certainly since March of this year, I've been, I, I had to go and get a bunch of new interviews, but um, hearing these stories of these people, um, even my best memories are now infected with, well, at that time, even though I had this great memory, at this, at this point, in 1983, this terrible thing was going on with somebody else, you know. Um, so I, I don't, I believe that people should get behind truth, not get behind their fuzzy feelings. Um, because we all have fuzzy feelings, even, you know, there, you know, you always see in the news, you hear about people who were arrested or pedophiles or uh, church pastors doing these crazy things. And you see their neighbors and they're like, Oh, I, I never thought that about them. They're such a good guy. They were, they brought me brownies one time or, you know, and they're like, well, that's great, but there's still the truth here. And you, so you, what, what do you stand for? What do you stand for? Um, but with Jesus people, it's a bit more complicated because people feel like as do I, that it's family. It's not just church members. I spent 20 something years with these people. And so, um, you realize that you have to start talking about family and you start have to you put lines in the state you're putting a line in the sand saying no this is what i believe in and a lot of people will say uh well maybe that's true but these people are my family i can't I, you know i can't talk about them or i can't get on your side or um it, it comes it turns into something of this the, this side and the other side um, which has been going on for years with Jesus people in terms of former members and current members. Um, this situation now is a whole different ballgame. We're going to get right back to this conversation with Jamie Pratt. I just want to take out a moment to hip you to some things. First of all, thank you very much for listening to the show, or at least to the halfway point. I appreciate it. If you can, go to my page at feralaudio.com, and if you can... Donate some money, a dollar, a few dollars. We don't advertise right now, but we do use the money towards good things to buy more equipment, to uh, I need resources. I have to read a lot of books and magazines and things to keep up on certain subjects that I talk about on my show. We travel sometimes to interview. We don't spend that money on coke and whores. Man, would we like to, but we have guilty consciences. Also, Dustin Marshall sacrifices a great deal of his life to put all the shows on Feral Audio, and he has no form of income other than that, and he works more hours than I ever have in my life. If you can't donate money, hey, I totally get it. These are tough times, man. They suck the big dick. But you can, the next time you buy something, uh, say like on Amazon, you could buy a dildo or Cheerios on Amazon, and uh, we get a kickback of that money, so go to my link there on the page. Also, write a review for my show, rate the show on iTunes. That helps. Uh, you know that act is also very helpful to us. Uh, give me five stars. Take a screenshot of that. Email email me at conversationswithdwyer at gmail and I'll make sure you get a sticker. I'm getting some stickers made up. Also, go to mattdwyer.tumblr.com. Uh, I'm going to be on the road this year uh, at uh, a couple times in 2013, and at the beginning of 2014, I'm going to be opening up for David Keckner, Champ Kine from Anchorman, uh, at various theaters around the country, Boston, Philly, D.C., 
Seattle, Portland, Minneapolis, and Milwaukee, just to name a few. Uh, so come see me live and uh, email me. Let me know you're coming. And uh, I, I can't probably comp you, but it would be nice to meet some of my listeners out there. I'm going to be all over. So uh, please, please, please check that out. Uh, those dates will be up on my Tumblr page under live show events. Thank you very much. Back to the conversation. Uh, and how did you, what was the, what made you decide to start investigating this as a filmmaker? Um, well, let me give you a little bit of history. I went to Columbia College for film and video, um, and I've always been in love with film, fiction film. That's my first love. Like, you know, I love The Dark Crystal is one of my all-time favorite films. Um, and I, when I was in Columbia, I started to minor in documentary, and I became enthralled with it. I don't know why. Um, and... Um, I had people telling me, even when I was in college and living at Jesus People, you need to tell your story. And that was nothing. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I should, you know. But I didn't even – it was, was anything that I was thinking of. Um, but even lately, on retrospect, I think about the things – the films that I loved and was enamored with as a child, like Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, which was basically a story of a woman who had to conform – so that she could be loved by someone else. Um, I was obsessed with it. Um, I did a, a short documentary on geisha when I was in college, but it was, again, it was another story of women who had to conform um, to society, uh, the society that they lived in, to feel good enough. Um, and this, when I was a very young child, I loved this book called The Trumpet of the Swan by E.B. White. And it was a, a, a book about a swan who had no voice. Um, and I, I think about all these things that I loved as a child and I, I'm, you know, it kind of knocks me over because I, in, in my desires in in these things that I love, I'm crying out for help, you know? Um, and it's, it, 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 it's, I don't know. I can't, it's hard for me to describe, but anyways, those are the kind of things that inspired me. And then hearing, over and over, Jamie, you need to tell your story. Jamie, you need to tell your story. And I was kind of getting involved in other things. Now, I had edited other documentaries. I'd made some short films. I attempted to make a feature film when I lived in Hollywood that I never finished. Um, but then I was living in North Carolina in 2008, and um, I started talking with, and you saw this is in the film, and this is also in the trailer, so I feel like I can talk about it. Um, I was talking with a girl who I grew up with who was younger than me, and she was like, just telling me stories about people. And I was like, oh my God, like not believe, thinking I was the only one going through what I went through. And then um, I knew in like, there was like a fire. It was like, I knew I needed to get back and start talking with people. And initially it wasn't about sexual abuse. It was just like, what is this crazy place we grew up in? Let's talk about it, you know? And there was no direction. There was no real focus. I, was, I thought I was gonna make a film that would investigate that. And I did. And I put together an hour and 53 minute version of a film that was in black and white. Um, that was very interesting, but it didn't, there was no real, it didn't really go anywhere. It didn't have any real story um, and, until all of these stories started to pour out. And I realized I had to retool and get rid of most of the interviews that I had done and interview more people. And uh, that happened. So I posted in a private group, a secret group on Facebook. Um, the first black and white hour and 53 minute cut of the film. And then um, I invited about 240 former members of the commune 
to watch it and stories just poured out everywhere um i was just i mean my jaw dropped to the floor and it's been on the floor since i mean i have still heard i mean you're talking a week ago i talked to another girl who joined the jesus people when she was 10 and she's 50 now um and the stories that she told me i just i i can't even process right now um i was trying to maybe interview her to get her into the last minute but it didn't work out um but i just realized this is a story that i need to tell and this is the story that has to be told now how have they reacted to this at all no, they have not. Um, initially, there were some responses because when I first started talking about this and I started really to go public with it on a small level, I was friends with, you know, people who lived in Jesus people, you know, people who I was friendly with. Um, and they immediately defriended me, most of them. There's a couple who still live in Jesus people who I am friends with on Facebook. Um but it was uh, a real circle your wagons kind of thing. And I got a couple of hate emails or messages on Facebook, but then largely it just stopped. It all stopped. Um, and I mean, which is fine with me, but uh, I think this type of thing, when you're talking about survivors of childhood sexual abuse, you don't really want to criticize them in public. Right. I just, do you think they will ever like, like the, uh, the committee of, Jesus people will respond or do you think they'll just be like, let's not touch this? I would hope that they would respond. Um, even if I would hope that they even just say, Hey, we, we've heard these, our hearts are breaking. We wish them well, you know, even if they don't take responsibility for it um, or yeah, take their large part of responsibility for it. I would hope that they would say something, something s sentimental or, Hey, we're we're sorry. I mean, I don't believe they're ever going to say they're sorry ever. But yeah, they won't acknowledge. I mean, do you do you think that it is to their the fault of the community that these things happened? Um, well, I believe that the community was engineered um, in a way, and I said this in the trailer, where anybody and everybody could come into Jesus people um, and. That come as you are mantra was, you know, kind of what their their that was their tagline, and so anybody and everybody came in, and it was this it was engineered in a way so that because anybody and everybody could come in, the children were not priority. Um, so I believe, just like if there's a just like you know if there's a, a company and it's having problems and there's they're losing money or something's wrong or their product something's wrong with their product, you're going to go to the CEO and say what's wrong. And people aren't going to go to the accountant and say what's wrong. They're going to go to the people who run it and say what's wrong. So in that sense, I believe that there is absolute responsibility on the on the, the side of the, the leadership of Jesus people. But I also believe that there is responsibility on the parents, too, the parents who brought their children in who um, didn't wise up and didn't say, hey, no, my children are more important than what these people are telling me and that their safety and their well-being is more important. Um, I think that there's I think there's blame to go for both sides. Is there within the community is there somewhat of a element of fear because it, there is like if you're say a, a a man with a family and it from what I gather it doesn't sound like people 
I mean, do they have cash? Can they be like, all right, let's split? I mean, if that's your entire world and you have nowhere to go, you're kind of screwed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think ultimately, I believe if you believe in the Christian God or you believe that God takes care of you or whatever, you shouldn't be afraid. You shouldn't be afraid to leave. And I think people leaving now is probably a little bit easier. Um, but at the same time, the longer you stay Jesus people, you, they don't, you know, you, you might be working at a business for them making money, but your social security isn't paid into, you don't have any health care, um, except for what the city offers, you know, the free city, you know, Whoa, they uh, don't take, they don't like if a child gets the flu, they're up to the whim of, of our great government. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if, if a kid gets sick, typically, you know, I mean, but it sometimes depends. When women have babies, they'll go to, like, um, uh, certain hospitals. But largely, if you have, you know, issues with your teeth or whatever, you'd go to Cook County Hospital, which is kind of the free clinic. Now, I can't really speak to to the details of what goes on there today, but I do know that they don't have, they still don't have health care. And the longer you stay, like my parents were in Jesus People for 22 years or 21 years, and that's 21 years that there was no nothing paid into their social security. So that means they're going to be working until they're in their 70s, um, just to kind of make up for that. So the longer you stay, in some ways, in my belief, it, it is harder for you to leave because what are you leaving for? What, what are you going to leave? If you're younger, if you join in your 20s and you leave when you're 35 or whatever, um, that's fine. I, I would think, you know, you still have time to kind of make up for lost time, but you know, there are people who are living in Jesus people for 30 years, 35 years right now, you know, and they, I, I you know, that's a, that's a tough road to be on. That it's cr- crazy. I mean, it, those people don't really have a sense of reality <laughs> or, or they have their own reality. It just seems really not good to poorly articulate what I was feeling. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's like now you have and I'm assuming that when this film comes out or, and or and word is getting out more and more people are going to continue to uh come forward to you do you and like that footage of the woman you said you the 50-year-old woman uh, do you intend to perhaps do something with that footage anyway Well her I was not able to interview her um I just I, it just didn't end up working out. Um, I know that's a good question because people still come to me and the story continues to unfold, but I had to come to a point where I have to stop because emotionally for me, I can't handle it anymore. Um, this film has taken over my entire life. Um, absolutely in every way. And um, I've been pretty stoic about it, I guess. And I've been pretty unemotional about it. And um, I got it. I have to get to a point where um I have to be done. Now, I don't think I'm going to be done with the story. I think it's going to, especially when the civil suit is filed, um, it's going to be a public record um, because there's a civil suit going on right now, um, which I don't know if you should mention that when you edit it. I don't know. I have to find that out. That's okay. Um, But anyways, once the civil suit is filed, it's going to be a public record, and they're going to be reporters and all kinds of people reading that, and it's probably going to make the the evening news. Um, So I don't think I'm done with this story um, and anyway, and also, I mean, it's a story that I've lived, so I'm not going to be done. Um, and this is a film that I believe that, that I, it's not just me who made this film. It's me and 
a bunch of other people who come to, came together, who financially supported me, who got me interviews um, in some cases, um, who did some footwork in terms of getting the statistics. I don't know if you saw the statistics of people who had been sexually abused at Jesus people between ninety between 1974 and 1998, but the statistics are mind-boggling. Um, so I, it's a long way to answer your question, but I maybe in terms of my film, I'll be done, but in terms of me talking and meeting with people, I won't be done for a while. I would imagine listening to all those stories, and I'm assuming you've probably read even more than that are in the film, like via email and, and whatnot, must have been really difficult to not i i mean to to keep your head about you and not get de depressed or upset is is that correct oh absolutely i mean i i there are stories that people have shared with me in private that are trump so many of the stories that i have on camera um but the people are too afraid of of hurting other people by telling their story or hurting their parents once their parents find out um I and I have certainly gone through a roller coaster of being okay and then hearing a story and then being depressed for a week. Um, luckily, depression doesn't really stay with me that long. Um, but it's, uh, I mean, I, first of all, I can't imagine carrying these stories. I mean, I went through what I went through as a kid, um, and it was traumatizing and it changed my life. But what I went through compared to most of the people who I've interviewed is nothing. Um, so it's been the most difficult thing and it makes me angry. I mean, I'm angry really. Um, and I'm angry that all of this has happened and that it's, these people are kind of thrown away. These people that a collective of people wrote, raised, and then they're either sent off in the night or they end up leaving on their own. And there's no, like, there's no ownership of them, of, of these kids who are now adults of their lives or, or, Hey, you know, maybe what you went through was really difficult in, in part because we engineered it that way, um, even though we didn't mean to hurt you. Um, I just, uh, having their knowledge, having their stories in my head, I mean, they swirl around in my head every day. And it's the only thing that I can do is get this film out and, you know, have people see it so the truth can be, you know, shown to the world. And so then hopefully the court of public opinion will um, exact whatever it needs to. It's, it's also, it's amazing, like, the, when I'm watching the film, you, these people who are cl claiming to be Christians and good Christians, and and yet, like, how do you? I just, how do they? Do they not? Are they sociopaths? Because it's like, do you not know that what you're doing is wrong? And in some instances, it was like repeated. Um, I think like most institutions, um you're going to see it more clearly on the outside than you will on the inside. And I think that goes for everything, not just Jesus people. Um, I want to kind of stay away from myself, kind of more incendiary terms. I don't, uh, and I think I need to say this, I don't hate them. I've never hated them. Um, I have a deep sense of love for who these people are. That doesn't negate the horrible negligence on their part. Um, but, uh, those questions, the question that you asked, I asked the same thing, like, how could you let this go on? How could you, how could you not do anything in these, these instances? How could you treat children like they were responsible for what has happened to them as opposed to the 
perpetrators. I don't, I don't know. I don't understand this. And, um, I, I, I try to I try to understand because I'm a very I, I believe that people are inherently good. I believe that people and maybe this is naive of me, maybe it is, but I believe that people want the right thing. And I even believe that there was nothing malicious on the part of the Jesus people leadership. I don't think they they wished any hurt upon any of the children. But what I think happened is the preservation of the community was such priority um, that anything um, any type of reporting of abuse to authorities would undermine that. That's my opinion. Um, that's the only way that I can make sense of it. Do you think, is it possible that they'll respond and say, like people can, uh, will may accuse you of like, oh, he's sensationalist or he's uh, bitter about his experience or... Do you do you foresee anything like that coming from them or? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know. I would hope that they don't. I would hope that um, people would be sensitive. Um, uh, I, but it's very possible. I mean, in the past, well, yeah. I mean, I, when any when any kind of criticism has come up towards Jesus people in the past, um, the people who are bringing the criticism were not met with anything. Po- positive or pleasant. It was very, very difficult. And that's been a fear of mine that uh, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be character assassinated. Absolutely. That's a big fear of mine. Um, uh, but I would say the fear is lessening though, um, because I, I feel like the truth is on my side. Um, and I'm not doing this out of hate or bitterness or um, I'm doing it out of love of anything else. And I think I, I, uh, but obviously the people who live in Jesus people aren't going to see that. They're going to think Jamie who has an ax to grind with Jesus people, uh, Jamie who never liked Jesus people, Jamie who was a troubled child. That's what they're going to, that's what I will probably hear. Um, again and again, but again, I, I haven't really heard anything. Um, uh, it's been really quiet from, um, people inside Japuza, but so I guess that's good. Yeah. And it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't come off in a film and it doesn't come off in a conversation that you're somebody who's out for vengeance or anything. It comes off as a very honest and, I mean, you even say that there's moments that you wish, like if you could go back and live those moments at your childhood there, that you would, that it, you know, you do uh, focus on the positive as well. You're not just like these vicious child molesters <laughs> it's it's very there is you do show a, a positive side and i think that's very important and there's also you mention in the film about another documentary that was made or was attempted to be made in uh, i believe in the 1970s about jesus people yeah um actually that's changed in the edit now that's been removed there's oh, me and the, uh the gentleman and i who we're working together have parted ways. So I don't know, you probably shouldn't use this in whenever you edit for this podcast, but, um, but actually I was able to purchase some footage from him to use in the film. So some of the footage that is going to still be there, but the, the portion or the component about uptown Christian soldiers, that documentary that was made is not in there in the, anymore. Oh, I was just, I was curious about that documentary because and I don't know if you can you not talk about if what is in. The- no, I can talk about it. I mean, it's on it's on Facebook. It's anybody can go and watch it for sure. Because it's because didn't they during that documentary didn't they some people come forward and say yes. 
were like saying negative things about Jesus people in the Onward Christian Soldier documentary, and they kind of couldn't use it. Or did I get that information incorrectly? Well, from what I know, um, the man who made the documentary said that some more serious general allegations came forward, but they were not able to use it. Um, and that WTTW at that time, Channel 11, the local PBS station in Chicago, was not comfortable airing um, the more incendiary accusations toward Jesus people. Do you recall what any of those uh, were? Uh, I do not. Um I don't. Uh, I, I could say some generalities, but I don't. I want to make sure whatever I say is substantiated and that I know it is fact, and I just don't know. But I do know what I do know that it was. If you watch that film, which is available online, there are people talking about certain practices of Jupuza, and they're in, shrouded in black, and their voices are distorted a little bit. And the other interviews that he was not able to use, um, I believe, were accusing Jupuza of doing. of. Of, or of two, accusing, how shall I say this? They were making the, they were alleging that worse things were going on inside the community at the time. Um, that's all that I know. Uh, and uh, just, do you know, have any idea what you want to do once this film is done? Because I would imagine it's going to feel, once it's finished and out there, it must, you probably feel like a huge weight has lifted off your shoulders. I would imagine. Yeah, I'm feeling that a little bit more and more. The film is just about done. Um, I've actually, I'm sending it to Sundance either sometime today or tomorrow. I'm going to FedEx it overnight. Um, so my first hope is that, well, I need a distributor. I don't have a distributor of the film. I've gotten enough feedback from um, people who are, who are filmmakers who are unrelated to the story, who aren't emotionally connected, that I have something that is really powerful and really important. Um, and so my next step is to get a distributor, and hopefully that I can do that through Sundance. Unfortunately, with Sundance, I have to wait until January, if they even pick me. Um, and I won't even know if they pick me um, until December. Um, that's, I mean, that's my dream. I mean, I think that's probably every, film, every filmmaker's dream. Um, but the film is essentially done for... It will be, at least by, you know, the end of this afternoon. It'll be done as it can be until um, I know what Sundance has to say. But I, I, I at the same time, I, I almost, I don't like having people, I don't want to make people wait either because I feel like this film needs to get out as soon as possible. Um, I would, you know, would I love people to go into a theater and watch it? Absolutely. Um, I get, you know, documentaries are way far less, um, lucrative than you know fiction films you know there's a much larger market for other things but i uh, you know my 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 focus right now is to get a distributor and if i got a distributor to yes tomorrow and i would probably pull out from sundance um if it was a good enough deal and uh, how does how do you go about getting a distributor do you send the film to i, I have no idea how that is done yeah uh it, it can be done in many ways you can kind of pitch it to certain studios or distributors. I can distribute it myself, which is, uh, I know I have friends who have done that and they, you know, it was a pretty good market for them. Um, I, part of me, I, I, I kind of want to let someone else do that. I don't want to have to like, oh, okay, now I have to master a DVD and now I have to get it printed. Now I got to get all these cases. I don't want to worry about all that. Um, but it might come to that. So, um, and maybe that's the best route for it to go, but I would rather 
I would like it to be aired on something like PBS or HBO, um, just so that the world can tune in. Um, and it's not just like, oh, hey, let me buy a DVD, where so you can go to one place and see it. Um, eventually, um, I would love it to be online for free um, at some point a couple of years from now, once it's, you know, the market's been, you know, I've used the market enough, but um, I really, I just think it needs to get out there. There's some information in there that needs to be exposed. And do you know what you'd like to do for your next project after this? Are you going to go after another documentary or are you going to? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I had a couple of documentaries in mind. Um, like I said, my first love is feature film, is fiction film. Um, I'm going to let kind of where this film this film goes dictate to me what my next project's going to be. I had a couple of I, – I had an idea of um, – doing a documentary about how women are viewed in a, this this country, how women are kind of articulated and framed in America, and do that in context of uh, domestic abuse um, and kind of the players in that. That's a pretty heady thing. I don't know if I can get into anything that heavy. I think I need something lighter. Um, I have another friend who is a cartoonist who I was thinking about doing a documentary short on him. But I don't know. Um, I think I feel like the doors are going to be open that are going to be probably a little bit bigger than I realize. So we'll see. You could uh, do a, a documentary on a uh, comedian who does podcasts who also loves to drink. Yeah. Who loves to day drink. And we just did, it's mostly just me day drinking. <laughs> it, it's not yes. really exciting. It's just me in a dark, quiet. It's a very sad film, really. <laughs> call it, we could call it the afternoon lush. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and now if I, if I'm not mistaken, you were, um, there is a PayPal thing for your film too, to, uh, help with the post-production or is that been taken care of or cause I definitely, uh, yeah. you know, we're still raising support. There's still some things that, uh, I have to get done. Um, initially when we started Kickstarter, I was going to use most of that money for finishing my film. Cause I thought, Oh, I'm kind of done with it. And then I realized I wasn't done. So most of that money that, that I used for, or all of that money that I used, aside from some new equipment, went to um, me driving all over the country or flying all over the country, getting more interviews. Um, and there are certainly costs involved in terms of audio mastering, which for some reason costs an arm and a leg. Um, and I've had some great supporters behind me. I've had a lot of people who have really ponied up in terms of uh, financial support, and it's been awesome. Um, but certainly... Um, there's always the desire for more. Um, I mean, most of the most of the money for the film came out of my own pocket. The, the last few thousand dollars came from other people. But uh, yeah, I, that's something that uh, I still really firmly believe in. And, and it's always difficult for me to ask for money. I've never been in this position before, but people really believe in this, and uh, it's been really humbling for me to. You know, even with my Kickstarter, people kind of took it over and they said, "Hey, let's raise this money for Jamie," and they did. Um, and I've had support after that as well. Um, I, you know, and certainly if I end up going to Sundance, that's going to cost me some money. And, you know, right now I, I moved to my parents' house in Indiana to finish the film. I quit my job. Um, and I've kind of been living the best that I can, um, that way. And it's, it's certainly, it's in the country. It's great. I'm looking out a great window right now with trees and farmland and all that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I don't want to talk about this too much. <laughs> <laughs> but um, is is there? Because I'm going to wrap it up soon. So is there? Where yes, there's a 
Oh. The PayPal, uh, you can the PayPal link you can find on my on the official page for this documentary. It's facebook.com forward slash no place to call home documentary. And is there any? And they can find the trailer and all information there. But, uh, That's, right. That's right. There are two trailers there: trailer A and trailer B. There's also the, the statistics that I was talking about earlier in terms of uh, how many people have reported uh, they were abused between 1974 and 1998 in Jesus people, which I think is probably more the most important thing, more than the trailers on that page. And is uh, do you have a Twitter handle or any of those things people can follow you so they can uh, or and Facebook so they can keep up to date on what's going on with the film and when they may be able to see it? Absolutely. Um, my Twitter handle is sound go asunder. Um, and we don't have an official like a site for the documentary right now in terms of something unrelated to Facebook right now. The Facebook page is pretty much official, but the official site is probably going to go up within the next few days um, because things are really ramping up and I feel like it's about time. So great. Thank you very much for your time, Jamie. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for watching it and everything like uh, just for helping the story get out. I think it's so important. And, and what's more, the most important thing for me is, I don't, this is not about me. This is about the stories of other people. This is about sexual abuse that went on in a group that went unreported and that was in large part quieted. Um, and those, that is what is important to me and getting the people who are involved, who getting them some type of healing or having their story be told so that they can get to a place in their life where they can live their life and thrive as opposed to just barely survive. Um, that's, that's paramount for me. Great. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Please find other shows on Feral Audio and listen to them. Keep supporting us and power to the people.
the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.